Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Morris Ardwin, a co-host for the podcast, Queer Voices of the South. Today, I'm talking with Jim Downs about his book, Stand By Me, The Forgotten History of Gay Liberation, paperback edition released earlier this year by the University of Georgia Press. Welcome, Jim. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Jim Downs is the Gilder Lehrman NEH Professor of Civil War Studies at Gettysburg College. He's the author of the critically acclaimed Sick from Freedom, African-American Illness and Suffering During the Civil War and Reconstruction. He has also written for Time, The Huffington Post, and The New York Times, among other publications. A little bit about the book, Stand By Me, Forgotten History of Gay Liberation. It's the untold story of the rich variety of gay life in America in the 1970s. Despite the tremendous gains of the LGBT movement in recent years, the history of gay life in this country remains poorly understood. According to conventional wisdom, gay liberation started with the Stonewall riots in Greenwich Village in 1969. The 1970s represented a moment of triumph, both political and sexual, before the AIDS crisis in the subsequent decade, which in the view of many exposed the problems inherent in the so-called gay lifestyle. In Stand By Me, the acclaimed historian Jim Downs rewrites the history of gay life in the 1970s, arguing that the decade was about much more than sex and marching in the streets. Drawing on a vast trove of untapped records of LGBT community centers in Los Angeles, New York, and Philadelphia, Downs tells moving, revelatory stories of gay people who stood together as friends, fellow believers, and colleagues to create a sense of community among people who felt alienated from mainstream American life. As Downs shows, gay people found one another in the Metropolitan Community Church, a nationwide gay religious group, in the pages of The Body Politic, a newspaper that encourages readers to think of their sexuality as a political identity, and at the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookstore, the hub of gay literary life in New York City, and at theaters putting on Gay American History, a play that brought into to the surface the enduring prob, uh, problem of gay oppression. These and many other achievements would be largely forgotten after the arrival of in early 1980s of HIV-AIDS, which allowed critics to claim that sex was the defining feature of gay liberation. This reductive narrative set back the cause of gay rights and has shaped the identities of gay people for decades. An essential act of historical recovery, Stand By Me, shines a bright light on a triumphant moment and will transform how we think about gay life in America from the 1970s into present day. Um, Jim, tell us the difference between gay rights and gay liberation. What is that? So I would uh, describe gay rights as any opportunity by the gay community to gain rights from the state, from government. So the right to marry, the right for equal pay, the right for um, better housing conditions, etc. cetera. Uh, gay liberation was different. It didn't, it didn't attempt to to have gay people genuflect to the state and ask for rights. It instead imagined a revolution. Um, If we think about that today within the contemporary context, we can say that within the Democrat or even Republican party, that there's not one message from each party, that there's factions, there's variations along an ideological spectrum. And I think that's what was happening um, in the 1970s is that there was in fact um, a, a spectrum of beliefs. And in fact, many gay people uh, who were at the forefront of the liberation movement were imagining a revolution. And that revolution, in many respects, 
ultimately pave the way for what we consider to be rights. But if they had just gone for rights, I'm not convinced it may it would have worked. It was because they believed in a big revolution that that provided a framework for the the rise of rights that we enjoy today. Um, the you break the book up into uh, six or seven uh, realms where it's um, the, you you mentioned um, already the. Um, that gay people created a lexicon, an idiom, using newspapers, or prayer groups, churches, beauty contests, and bars, or bookstores of their own. It's all this cultural history that has long been forgotten. Um, tell us about how it started. Uh, you, st- you start with an, an, an incident in New Orleans in 1973. That's where you began the book. Um, tell us about how that and the religious movement, they played together. Those first two chapters of your book really come together to explain that. Give us a little bit more about that. Right. So when we think about when we think about what does it mean to come out of the closet? What does it mean to be gay? Um, these are not just about sort of a world of intimacy. It's not just about a fun night out and a Saturday night at a gay bar. Uh, the idea of coming out meant that you meant that gay people were embracing an identity that was seeped within a particular culture and community. And so the question then becomes, well, what was that culture in the community? It just didn't naturally exist. It wasn't just there. Um, So what I look at um, are the ways in which gay people worked to create a type of culture that would help to shape and inform a community so that when people came out, that identity of being gay was not just about what people called in the 1970s a sexual preference, but it was about being part of a community and culture. And so then in the 1970s, when we think about what distinguishes or what makes that culture, um, certainly sex does. Sex is a huge part of it, having sex with people of the same sex, um, going to bathhouses, going to orgies, being engaged in that world of sex is definitely a huge part of it. But we know that. Most people know that is the history of the 1970s. We don't know the sort of quiet work, the more subtle work that led to the stitching together of this community. And one of them was the creation of newspapers. Newspapers became a way that connected people in bustling urban centers to small rural towns. It connected large communities of gay people to individuals um, who were living by themselves. The newspaper informed people about what was going on in the gay world. It, you know, there, there were stories about politics, but there were also stories about um, the culture, everything from what was happening in the community to um, what kind of events were taking place uh, to just reviews of films or plays or um, other kinds of um, forms of entertainment. And that's what actually did the sort of quiet work of building together a community and uh, a culture. And so one of the people that I, I, I focus on in the book is a guy by the name of Craig Rodwell. And Craig Rodwell is someone who I hope in a hundred years will be added to every history textbook in the way that we know of Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks for Black History. We should know of um, Craig Rodwell for for the 1970s because Rodwell actually witnessed, he wasn't a participant at least for the first day at the Stonewall Uprising, but he heard the commotion when he was walking home to from his West Village um, apartment and he jumped up on a stoop and screamed the words gay power. So he's there at this sort of um, legendary moment in, in, in our history. But then he was also extraordinarily politically active 
before 1969, before the Stonewall Uprising. In fact, he leaves Chicago. Um, he had studied ballet. He comes to New York. And he's part of the Mattachine Society, which was the underground political group that were that many gay people were involved in in the 1950s and early 1960s. The Mattachine Society, by many historians' evaluations, was a kind of conservative group because they kind of kept quiet their political objectives. They didn't want to cause trouble, etc. Rodwell was a younger member. He was actually the vice president of the group. And he wanted people, he was a child of the 60s. He grew up in doing civil rights work, working in anti-racist movements. He had studied civil rights in Chicago. So he approaches yeah, this question of gay politics from the sort of from the sort of optics, from the sort of perspective of, of black civil rights. And part of black civil rights at the time was was promoting what people call the politics as respectability promoting positive images that could be embraced by non-Black people to support uh, Black civil rights. So he thinks, he says to the Mattachine Society, we need to get out there and we need to promote positive images of ourselves and they're afraid to do it. And so he said, we need to create a storefront that's open to um, people where they can see who we are and we should no longer be hidden underground. We should no longer be hidden behind closed doors. And they say, you know, we'll get bottles thrown through the windows. You know, people will attack us. We'll be targeted. And so what he does is he disagrees with them and he decides to do it on his own. And this is a moment in like New York history, which you, you it could never happen again. But maybe now with the city sort of on a sort of downward spiral, maybe this could happen. But he decides to want to open his own bookstore. So he goes to Fire Island which is a beach resort, gay beach resort at the time, still is, works as a bartender, comes home with a bucket of money and is able to rent a storefront, which again, this is like this New York <laughs> moment that you could never do that today, but he, you could do that in uh, 1967. So he wants to establish a bookstore and he calls it the Oscar Wilde bookstore because he wants a recognizable name that would be a kind of code for queer people to know what it was because Wilde is the sort of legendary queer icon and, at the time, but he wants the bookstore to not only sell books by gay people about gay people, he wants it to also serve as a community hub for queer people because this is the during right. a time when there isn't yet a gay community center. There's one in San Francisco that's starting to develop, but you don't today. If you go to most big cities, Chicago, Philadelphia, etc., you're going to find a community center. You didn't have that in 1967. You, it wasn't like there wasn't a visible space for people to come to outside of the bar culture. So Rodwell was kind of, a, he wasn't anti-sex. I mean, the, the misreading of him is to say like, he's puritanical. He's not puritanical. He's actually really into sex. He goes cruising. He has a relationship with a guy who's like a Wall Street type and they wake up every morning and they call each other and, and you know, he is. He had met this guy at a, at a cruising park, and this guy is, is, has like an interesting story. He at first, you know, disagrees with Rodwell's politics. He doesn't like Rodwell, um, you know, being so outwardly gay and political. But ultimately, learns a lot from Rodwell. One morning, he calls up Rodwell and he says, "Hey, I um, I've contracted gonorrhea." And Rodwell says, "Yeah, okay." And he said, "But I don't understand. We were supposed to be monogamous." And Rodwell said, "Well, no, I, I never said that." So the, the guy um, dumps Rodwell. He's really upset. And he eventually moves to San Francisco and he becomes, everybody knows him as Harvey Milk. 
Uh, so Rodwell had a relationship wow. with Milk, and Milk then opens his um, infamous camera shop um, in uh, the Castro, and that camera shop becomes like Rodwell's bookstore in New York, a community hub. becomes a It becomes an incubator for political activism, but also becomes a place for, where where gay people can hang out. So this is the kind of work that gay people were engaged in doing in the 1970s. There were the sweaty um, struggles in the streets, which are thrilling and exciting. And there were all of those things, but there was also the quiet work. But getting back to the sweaty struggles in the streets, Rodwell is one of the first gay people to attend the first outward public demonstrations in uh, Philadelphia before Stonewall in 1965 in Philadelphia at the Liberty Bell. He, by attending them, when Stonewall happens, the year anniversary, he, along with a couple of other people, become the architects of what becomes known as Christopher Street, because that's the main street in New York. Christopher Street Day, um, it's called it the Christopher Street Day Parade or something like that. Ultimately, it's the last Sunday in June. And this commemoration is what now becomes infamously known as sort of the gay pride in New York. So Rodwell is like at the center of like the beginning of gay pride events. He's at the first gay thing in New York. He's at, he creates the first gay bookstore in the world. In fact, I, and I mentioned this in my book, people from all over the world come to his store and they write to him and they ask him about how he did it. And ultimately they set up shops in London and other places. There's a shop in Philadelphia called Giovanni's room that was in fact, uh, you know, grew out of what 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 Wilde did, and so I mean, I'm sorry, what Rodwell did. So he's really um, a key uh, figure in thinking about uh, gay liberation um, and thinking about how just literature and books become a way to help inform a community. I, I have one one of the stories that I read that I, I loved reading was that a guy who was a soldier in Vietnam. Here we are thinking like Vietnam, the, 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 like the sort of height of of mask of hyper masculinity, and one of these soldiers is writing from Vietnam to Rodwell, saying, "I have you know some magazines that I bought at your store, some gay magazines, um, and some books, and I can't wait to come back um, when I'm eventually discharged to uh, you know see see what else you have on your shelves." So it is a store that's a beacon. Um, around the world, and it's it's quite it's quite fascinating. And today, you know, with the decline of independent bookstores and so forth, we kind of again don't realize how important it was then to have something like this. Right, and it's um, that whole area of uh, setting up a, a safe place for people to go where they actually felt they belonged, and um, it, it was a, a critical piece of the movement. Just saying, your identity is valid. Um, and and so you talk about that in other areas of the book, um, where, um, for example, the body politic. You mentioned that um, how that came to be, and it 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 had so many um, uh, pieces, just like this, uh, the cat story, is that it's it it started 
turning all kinds of wheels by existing and it started moving um, the community uh, the communities all over the country and in the world to have their own publications um, and it, this was the uh, you, you said it I think uh, in the book that it was considered the New York review of books the gay, the gay community's version of the New York uh, review of books um, tell us about the body politic a little bit uh, how that got started I know I know you you we mentioned it very briefly but you, give us a little bit more background on that so what happens is that when we're thinking about the the ways in which various communities and cultures actually remain connected, um, we have to think about what are the tools that do that. And so newspapers are a way are, are a great way. And so in every in every major city and even in smaller communities, there were gay newspapers throughout the 1970s. I picked the body politic because it was one of the more prevalent ones. And it had a serial run that lasted over a decade. Um, and basically, uh, when I was interviewing um, people from the period who are still alive today, they talked about the significance of the body politic, in particular, um, the fact that the reporting and the writing was equal to, as Jonathan Ed Katz, who's the subject of the book, um, mentioned, it was like the gay New York review of books. Um, and so there were lots of different kinds of articles in it. There was reporting on the politics, but there was also lots of stuff on the culture at the time. There was a lesbian writer, a lesbian feminist writer by the name of Chris Birchall, who is um, an incisive critic and thinker, and she's written a lot of great stuff. So there's, it, it, it's a really interesting to kind of think about how the body politic was um, an important paper that helped um, gay people develop both a political and a cultural identity and how they were able to sort of stay in touch. There were incidents um, where you had problems in, I mean, I mentioned this in the book where there were problems in South America. They only found out about problems in South America because gay people who were readers there were in contact with gay readers in Australia. Those readers in Australia contacted people in Toronto, Toronto then reports on what's happening in South America. So there really is this sort of way in which the paper, you know, stitches together this world and stitches together the concerns of gay people um, around the world. I, I was kind of working with a concept that never really panned out, but, you know, gay people's identity often transcended their national border. So that even though the paper was published in um, Canada it's most of its readers were in the United States, but then also through Europe, but also in Europe, South America and other places. It's almost like their gay identity, like transcends these national borders and they see themselves um, as a community um, around the world. And, I, and so the paper provides evidence of that kind of global community. And again, it also validates um, as a community. It's not just a rag. It's like you said, it had a lots of different types of content and um, writers, like the uh, the uh, writer you mentioned, who um, who started looking at things in ways that were all, that were uh, much more in depth than the, um, the the original bits and pieces of the gay publishing world, which were sometimes pamphlets and and community newsletters and things like that. Um, so it helps solidify and validate. Um, there, there are other parts of your book where um, you look 
at its behavior. You're looking at behavior. One of the things I found very interesting is the macho man, um, the clone who started taking over what gay people began to uh, idolize. But it also had some. It also caused some some uh, problems such as uh, racism and uh, sexism. But tell us about that macho man clone and how that that whole thing fits into this story. Right. So when we think about the early moment of the start of gay, the modern gay liberation movement, we see it um, with the rise of Stonewall. And there's lots of ways we can like complicate that history or call that into to question whether or not Stonewall is this sort of pivotal moment. But for argument's sake, for this, for argument's sake, particularly in relation to the clone, let's just say this is an important starting point. Um, and yet, during the starting point, when we think about who actually participated in Stonewall, it wasn't just white gay men. There were lesbians. There were trans people. There were what people called at the time street queens. There were um, drag queens. We we know now there's like a statue going up to honor Marsha Johnson. And so we have at the sort of, if we agree that Stonewall's the sort of birth of the modern gay liberation movement, it's actually a quite diverse population of people who participate in this moment. And yet, when we get to the end of the 1970s, white gay men come to represent the entire decade. And yet we started off <laughs> fairly diverse. So that's also, my question is like, well, how did that happen and why did that happen? And uh, when, you, when I went through the records, when I was going through the community center records and I was going through the newspapers and I was going through a lot of the surviving material, a lot of what I was finding was just really the stories of white gay people. And the question is, well, what happened to black people? What happened to women? What happened to these other groups? And exactly. as, a, as a historian, uh, I am interested in culture. So like I would say, just for the heck of it, I would say like a Beyonce song is just as important as a Michelle Obama speech, right? Because you're, both of them are text and both of them can tell us something. You know, some people would say, well, no, if Michelle Obama gives a speech, that's going to be at a Democrat national convention. That is legitimately more important. As a cultural historian, I would never legitimate one text over the other. I would say they both can tell us different things. They're both doing different kinds of work. They both have different types of objectives. They're both useful for us to examine. So similarly, when I'm asking this question about what's happening at the end of the 1970s, I started seeing in the gay newspapers, there were lots of images of gay people. And in the early part of the decade, you had you really thin gay guys, you had really large gay guys, you had, again, a full diversity of body type represented. By the end of the decade, it's all become this sort of what they call the the clone, the sort of macho, you know, the macho clone, this idea of he's muscular, he could potentially wear jeans or leather, he's got big pecs, he's got cannonball-sized biceps, he's masculine, you know, the, the, the focus on masculinity is really important. And then, of course, he's white. The clone is not black. The clone is white. And so, and the clone is male. And so this popular cultural representation in many respects reflects the aspirations of the community and it represents what matters in the community and it becomes a discriminatory force in opposing what doesn't belong in the community. So every now and again, you'll find a one or two sprinkled in a black guy that will look like that, but mostly not. It's mostly white. 
And so what I what I argue is that the emphasis on the clone becomes sort of culturally symbolic in terms of illustrating to the gay world and the gay community at the time what matters is masculinity, whiteness, manhood, and a certain kind of physicality, and everything else that doesn't fit into this mold gets pushed to the side. And so that's why we have the movement, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a cultural argument, but it's why we have the sort of movement going from a very diverse group of people led by gay liberationists who were anti-racist, who accepted both men and women. I mean, I have articles about men talking about um, how they were struggling with feminism, like men being like, okay, we've heard a critique launched at us by lesbians that were sexist. And that's the reason why they, lesbians, have formed their own organizations. Well, let me reflect on that. Like, what does that mean? How am I, how am I like in some way espousing patriarchal ideas without knowing it? So there were gay guys in the early part of the liberation movement who were reflecting on early forms of feminism and reflecting on what it meant to be a man. All of that stuff that fills the pages of newspapers sort of gets erased by and goes by the wayside in the early part of the 1980s and the end of the 1970s in favor of this masculinist notion of the clone. More to the point, um, because of the HIV AIDS crisis, all the intellectual energy then has to get devoted not to sort of thinking about themselves or their relationship to sexism and feminism. It has to go towards HIV. But more importantly, the clone then becomes sort of reified as this type of body type that can shield people from the onslaught of the epidemic. So there's another way that the clone can, by the early 80s, represent positive health. Uh, so all of these are like forces that I think lead to the sort of pushing away of, of gay people. But I have to tell you, um, I'm still working on this. <laughs> Still working on this question because right. I'm not I well, I'm not entirely satisfied. And so I just have an article that I just finished last week and it's gonna be out in a book next week. And um I, I really like want to think, all right, well, what are black people saying? Because the reality of it is if you go to the gay community centers, which are the best repositories for gay life in the 1970s, there's very little about gay black people in the 70s. In the 80s, there is around HIV AIDS, and there's a new book coming out by a historian at uh from the I think it's like Florida International University, um, who's written he's written about um, black gay men's response to the HIV epidemic. That's going to be a great book. In the seventies, all right, it's a completely different period. Um, a lot of gay black men, I think, see the kind of racism among this kind of reifying of whiteness and realize this is not a community for them. I actually found a really powerful quotation by James Baldwin, which is not in my book, but will be in the article, in which he says, that term means nothing to me. You know, when, when he's interviewed and the interview, you can look it up, it's, it's within The Nation reproduced it um, just uh, a couple of years ago. The Nation uh, found, or was it The Village Voice? Uh, I don't remember. The Nation of The Village Voice found an interview with Baldwin. And James Baldwin is obviously the most prolific gay person of the 20th century. So here we have someone who is going to leave us some kind of archival evidence about this intersection of race and, and, and sex, sexuality. And for him, the gay liberation movement is literally white. He doesn't see himself as part of it. He doesn't actually, real, he's not really uh, 
he he's not compelled to be sympathetic to their arguments and he's divorced from it. So when we go back and we look at the archives and we go, well, where are the, where are the black voices? Well, it's, there are very few in part because for them being gay is a white, the liberation movement is a white person's movement. And Baldwin even says the same thing too. And I think there's more evidence to support this around women. Like, you know, you might not see a lot of women involved in, certain versions of feminism because certain versions of feminism are not only discriminatory towards black women, but have also, you know, not offered them the space, which is why you have all of these things, these anthologies that are published by Kitchen Table Press and all these other groups by black feminists, um, by the Kumbahi River Collective and so forth that grow out of this angst, that this tension and this oppression. I haven't seen a similar sort of group um, that developed for gay men, of gay black men. But there's, there is this kind of sexism and racism that have contributed to uh, these worlds. At the, at the same time, though, there is a little bit of a, a silver lining in that clone um, is that it's not just the negative. It did help like other things that you bring out in the book uh, about like the, like the uh, religious movement, like the, the movement of bookstores. It did help. Uh, even though it was exclusionary, uh, uh, it did help solidify a certain amount of the population around an, uh, an ideal. Uh, as again, as as limited as it was, right. it, it helped in that so, regard. Right. So everything is right. So everything is. I mean, it depends on the community, depends on the place. So in certain populations, in certain places, there was the organization of the gay churches, and the gay churches. Um, articulate it as sort of opportunity for all people to participate. And you did see more black, you know, it being more diverse. And in fact, the, the cover of this book of the 26 of the 2020 uh, paperback edition, again, it, it shows you how historians are constantly doing research and finding new sources. It's an image um, that captures a group of young men outside a meeting of the metropolitan community church and they're black men, they're Latino men, and they're white men. And so I think that is sort of an important thing to say that we have photographic documentary evidence that the MCC was, as I suggested, it was open to all people and that it was a space where uh, people of color felt connected to um, uh, uh, other gay people. Um, thank you. Um, I know we are short on time. Um, but um, I, I want to thank you for coming uh, or joining the podcast. It's very important to us to hear voices um, from the uh, the queer community. Right. Um, and we focus on things Southern. And you have a lot about the South in here. The South is always Absolutely. part of the national <laughs> story, whether it wants to be right. or not. Um, right. But we're, we're running out of time. There's so much more in this book. I really urge the listeners to get this book. It's Stand By Me, The Forgotten History of Gay Liberation. It's and He just, you just mentioned it's now out in paperback by the University of Georgia Press. Please join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South. Goodbye, everybody. And thanks again, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>